if you were here last year, uh, you may have seen them running around causing havoc. They were foster kids back then. Uh, we had the privilege of fostering them, and now we completed our adoption on November the 22nd of this year. So they are forever ours, and we, uh, we couldn't be more thrilled uh, than to welcome them to our family. They are just, I mean, our, our hearts are just, we, we, we struggled several times over the course of, we, we only had them for a year before we adopted them. It's uh, unheard of, especially uh, around our county. Most families struggle for four or five years to adopt kids. They have six or seven kids in their home before they get to adopt ones. You know, we got a brother and sister right off the bat, and the Lord just worked it out where, you know, family, some family didn't want them. The, 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 the mother disappeared completely within a couple of weeks of us getting them. And then they have a, a biological aunt who we still stay in contact with. And she, became, she came back very supportive of us having them, which really helped us out a lot. And so we were able to adopt them almost one year from when we got them, uh, or just over a year. Like I think it was like 14 months from when we got them. It's just such a blessing. And so, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't want to compare adoption to having kids, you know. Obviously, having kids is a wonderful thing, and, and we're not in a position where we can have kids. Um, but it's nice because I, I told our, our, our son, I said, when you have kids, you're stuck with the kids you get. But we chose to have you. We chose to love you, and we want you as part of our family. And I think, I hope you understand what that means, you know. Um, because adoption, like we're doing it now physically, here in this world is just a picture of salvation because God completely adopts us into his family, right? Uh, he takes us, who we were strangers, we were outcasts, we were foreigners. We were, the Bible says, uh, without God, without hope in this world, we were, we were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We had no hope. But then he brings us into his family. I, one preacher, I forget who it was, said he takes the enemy and he puts on him the family robe, the family ring, and sets him at the family table. You know, that's what God's done for us. So if you see our kids running around after service, just make sure you say hi to them. They are sweet kids. Um, they've come a long way in the year we've had them. Uh, he, uh, Dale went through some counseling for a few months. Uh, he, he was very, he, he just, the, the life they came from was very, very bad. And uh, she was just barely two, so she doesn't remember a lot of it. But he does. Um, he has vivid memories of it. And uh, he went through a lot of trauma. We got him, he was, I mean, we got him, he was in a bad, bad place, very Violent, violent towards us, very aggressive, very hateful, had night terrors. Um, he hasn't had a night terror since last December. Um, he got through his counseling, and the counselor said he's, he doesn't need, he's, he's gotten through his anger issues. He's not violent anymore. He's, he's not, uh, he's overcome so much, you know. And um, it's, just, it's just amazing to see, uh, to see how, that, how that happens. Um, just kind of a little backstory from when, when they got taken away. He had a very bad image of police officers from what happened when he got taken away. And I, I can't blame him, you know. But when we first got him, man, he'd see police and he'd just say hateful things. Then yesterday we're at the Golden Gate Bridge and we we're waiting for the, the girls who were in the bathroom. And uh, a police officer drove by and he tapped me on the shoulder. He goes, Daddy, there's a police officer. He's just making sure that we're safe and we're okay. So as the police officer driving away, he's waving going, bye, we're okay, we're safe, you know. A year ago, I never would have pictured him doing that, you know. So God's been really good to our family. And uh, we kept asking him, do you know what adoption means? Do you know what adoption means? Leading up to the, the, the adoption, he just kept saying, forever family. We're forever family. So that, that means a lot to us to, uh, to have them. And then also my sister-in-law is here. If you see her, she's in teen class right now. Let's greet her. Her name is Sarah. Uh, good name, right? Good name. My wife's sister, she's living with us as well. We took her in a few months ago. 
Uh, she's in a very troubled home situation as well, and we were able to take her in and uh, hopefully have her with us till she graduates high school and, and give her a good home too as well. But we're not adopting her, we're just kind of her caregivers, but, uh, but greet her anyways, greet her anyways if you could. Um, our ministry has been really good this year, um, really blessed. Uh, I've been ministering in both North Kern State Prison in Delano and uh, the state prison in Lancaster, California. And uh, both have just been amazing. I, I brought some numbers to give you guys, but numbers can't really explain uh, what, what I've seen this year in the terms of the men. Uh, we've had a number of answers to prayer. We've been praying as a group, as a church there, for men who have life sentences to have a chance to have those life sentences reduced. You know, um, there's nothing more hopeless than knowing you're spending the rest of your life away from your family, you know. And uh, many of these men have been saved in prison. They've grown in the Lord. Uh, many of them have graduated college or Bible college even. And we've seen, in answer to our prayers, I think at least 11 or 12 men have their life sentences reduced. I had one just a couple of weeks ago who told me he was facing 53 to life. He's been there 54 years, and he just got a letter saying he'll go before a parole board in three months. So that's a real blessing, the idea that he'll get to go home and see his family again, you know. We've been praying for that. Um, I, I don't belittle what, they, what they've done. It's, a lot of their crimes are serious. It is. Um, and I think, I think there's a place for justice. I think there's a place for a life sentence. I really do. I think some people need to be in prison for the rest of their lives. Um, some of the men in the church have been saved. And they know they're going to be there for the rest of their lives because of what they did, they'll never get it reduced. And they're okay with that. I think that's a, that's a, that's a true sign of repentance, isn't it? When they're okay with their sentence because they know what they did was so heinous and so bad. But some of the guys, um, you know, they, if they have a chance to get their sentence reduced, I, I support them. I think it's good if they can return to their families. Uh, one man, um, his name is Anthony, um, he lives over in Richmond now. He was released in November. He was at North Kern, and he was there for, I want to say, 28 years. And he was facing 28 to life, had a chance to get out. And I, I've, I've spoken with him five or six times since he got out. And he is not only part of a church over there, he's going through daily discipleship with the pastor. Every day for an hour they spend going through the Bible together. Um, he's working there at the church. He got a job there as a, working in janitorial and cleaning up the church. He works throughout the week there, and he's doing real good. And that's just one testimony I've heard from several by letter, who since they got out this year are in church. They're serving the Lord. They're with their families, and and that's what I want to hear. I always tell them when you get out, write me a letter. Let me know how you're doing. Keep in touch with me. You know, I'm not just here to come in here and yell at you and go home. I want to know about your lives. I want to know what happens after this. Are you being faithful? And so I've gotten quite a few letters. Uh, as well, other men in the, in, that are still in the prison have gotten letters from men on the outside who've gotten out. And I think, I was trying to get a count before I left the house, I've got to bring it with me. I think there's been 12 men from North Kern who got released this year, who were facing life sentences but got released this year. 12 men. And all 12 of the ones I know of are in church, serving the Lord, going through discipleship. Uh, their families are saved. Their families are in church. They're going to church together as a family. And that's what I want to see. I want to see men continue on serving the Lord. Remember, California has a 60% rate of return to prison. But among the churched in prison, it's only 15%. The gospel makes a big difference in the lives of men. It does. Because it changes men. It changes them. So I want to encourage you with that. Uh, we had 13 men this year make professions of faith, which is a blessing. Uh, we gave out 146 Bibles, 12 New Testaments, and 113 Gospels of John. I was able to provide 22 Christian books for men in the prison. Uh, preached to 969 men attended services this year uh, in our chapel services. So that was a blessing. That's way up from, I think last year I preached to like 500. So 969 men this year uh, attended. We gave out 1,602 tracts. 
Um, I was able to correspond with eight men who are still in. That's not counting the ones who wrote me who are out of prison, but those are eight men who are in prison. And all eight of these men are not men that I preach to. These are men at other prisons, like in San Luis Obispo and San Diego, who met a man that I preached to in North Kern and Delano. In the reception yards, I mentioned to you guys, reception yards, uh, about 700 men a week come into reception, and about 700 men a week go out. They're shipped out to other prisons. They come in there for about 90 days, and they're shipped out. So when we give out Bibles in there, we're giving out Bibles to men who we may never see again. They may not stay there at that prison, or they may not end up in Lancaster. So what happens is these, these eight men, somebody who received a Bible at our chapel, took that Bible to the next prison, told them about us, and they began to write to me asking for a Bible, asking for spiritual guidance, asking for, you know, this, this question or that question about the Bible. So these are men who I never had personal contact with, but who were able, I was able to talk to and, and minister to because other men had told them about our ministry. So that's a real blessing to me as well. And then uh, I, I encouraged the men to start writing me prayer requests. I said, I want to pray over your, your concerns, your burdens. I want to share in your burdens. And then... Uh, so men, they started sending me prayer requests, and I began to, to tell my church, you know, encourage my church, hey, why don't you guys take some of these prayer requests and pray over them? And my church has responded immensely to this request. Uh, the other day, I opened up 100 more requests that were sent to me, and um, within five minutes, opening the envelope, they were all gone, giving out to people who wanted handfuls of prayer requests from prisoners to take home and pray over. It's just amazing. So I received 446 prayer requests this year that I was able to share with, uh, with my church, and we all prayed over them collectively, so... That, that's a real blessing. And then our street ministry, we, we do a lot of street preaching as well. And we were able to, uh, to preach at several big events this year, like the Super Bowl in Atlanta. Uh, that was a terrible experience. Never go to the Atlanta Super Bowl. If you ever go to the Super Bowl, don't go to that one. It's, the city does not know how to prepare for large crowds of people. There were six bathrooms for 1.2 million people. Okay. There ended up being, a, on, on the second day we were there, there ended up being a riot in one of the hotels that had a bathroom because people were fighting to get to the bathroom. It was horrible, okay? I, I didn't wait for less than four hours for a bathroom when I was there. So it was, yes, the city of Atlanta does not know how to host a Super Bowl. But we still preached to a lot of people and got to give out a lot of Bibles and tracts. Um, so that was a real blessing. Went to the Pac-12 championship here in Santa Clara a couple of weeks ago and preached there as well. I uh, got to witness to a police officer who was listening to us preach. And had a lot of questions. He was from a, a Roman Catholic background, had a lot of questions, and the, the things we were saying were different than what he had heard. He wanted to know where our differences were, why we believe what we believe. So that was a great chance to sit and go through the Bible with him and talk about what we believe, why we believe what we do. Um, we've had a lot of divine appointments this week, or this week, this year. Um, the, if I have a chance to get to my lesson today, I, I'm, I'm preaching on the virgin birth and how we can be sure of the virgin birth of Jesus. And I preached that at the Christmas banquet in Lancaster. And I had two men come to me during lunch because what, what the Christmas banquet, I, I preach and then we have lunch together. The men cook lunch and we eat it together. One man came to me and said that he's brand new to attending the services there. And he goes, I'm not a Christian. And my one hang up is, how can I really know the virgin birth is real? And you said four times that you're absolutely sure of it. It was a divine appointment. I had no idea he was going to be there. That, that, that was a question on his mind. But I was able to share with him why I believe, why I'm sure of the virgin birth. Another man in that same service came to me, and uh, he's not a Christian either. And in prison, you have to understand, the most outspoken group of religious people in the prison is the Muslims. They're very evangelistic out on the prison yard. And that, as he was, he's been going to the, to the Christian service, and he went to the Muslim service for a while, now he's going to the Christian service. 
And he said the one hang-up he'd been having was the virgin birth. Because he said that his Muslim friends keep telling him that there was no reason for God to, to have a virgin birth. And so therefore it was, it was not true because it was, it was ridiculous. And so my message was able to re resonate in his heart that there is, because I went over the specific reasons why the virgin birth is so important and why we can be sure of it. And so those were divine appointments that I'm, I'm seeing in the prison. Uh, we had in uh, North Kern a couple of months ago, we had, I think I told Pastor about this one, we had a, a service on, on our Friday night service. Um, the, uh, the yard was closed that day, so they only let out people who were coming to church. Um, I don't know what happened. There's something happened on the yard, but... Anyways, the yard was closed, so they had the church guys coming out, and they had the guys coming out for their pills, for their medicine. They have a line for medicine every night. And so a guy was walking past the chapel, going back to his building, and he saw us all in there. So he walks up to me. I was standing in the doorway greeting guys coming in. He goes, are you guys having services tonight? I said, yeah, yeah. He goes, are you guys Christian? Or, he said, yeah, we're, yeah, we're Christian. Turns out he was, he was um, new at the prison. Like, he'd been there like a week. At the prison, and didn't he wanted to find out more about the Christians, but he didn't know when they met or when chapel was, or didn't know any Christians. His his cellmate was a Muslim; he didn't know any Christians. So I said, "Well, why don't you come in, come into the service?" And uh, it was just an amazing service. Uh, we we did some singing. He's kind of sitting in the middle of the room, just kind of taking it all in, observing it all. And I began preaching, and I forget now the subject I was preaching on, but it was on repentance, the true meaning of repentance from sin. And I noticed he started crying during the service. And he raised his hand. And in my services, I have an open forum. So I allow the guys, if you have a question, raise your hand. I'll stop preaching. We'll answer the question. I, I want them to know I'm here for you guys, right? I'm not just here to give you guys a speech and walk away. I want to, if you have a question, ask it. So he raised it. So as he's asking the question, he breaks down into tears and goes from question to confessing his sin. Just openly. Just everything he'd been doing and saying and thinking. And speaking. And then the guys began, some of the guys began to weep. And they gathered around him. And they began to lay hands on him and pray over him. And pretty soon the whole sermon just stopped. We all just gathered around him and prayed. And since that day, he's come to Friday night services. And he's been coming to the prayer meetings that they have throughout the week. And it was just such a divine appointment that we were there that night when he got his medicine. And he came in. And it just, I don't know what it was. I, I, we didn't ask anybody to confess sin out loud. We didn't ask him. But it just, he couldn't hold it in anymore. And he was repentant, and his whole life has changed. So since, his, since he changed, since he started coming to church, uh, other men have started coming to church. We've had visitors every Friday since then. That was about th two months ago. Every Friday, when I ask guys, why would you come tonight, you know, for your first time, they always tell me the same thing. Well, we heard something's been happening over here, so we wanted to come check it out. One guy said he hadn't come to services in a year, but he heard something was happening here, and he wanted to see what was going on over here. Uh, one of the guards had mentioned to us, that, hey, Anthony, you know, he's a, he's a Christian, the guard is. What's up with Anthony? I told him, I said, well, a couple of months ago he came in and started confessing sin, crying, and we prayed over him, and he's been coming. He goes, man, that guy is so different than he was when he came in here. He was so foul-mouthed and so rude and so, he's not that way anymore. So it's caused a little revival there on the, on the, on the mainline yard because guys are seeing that God is doing something different. So we're, we're thankful for that. Um, so just a lot of divine, divine appointments. I I preached here last year, if you guys remember, um, the sermon from my mom's funeral. I preached that sermon. So in January, the first, I think it was the first Sunday of January, I preached that in Lancaster. I just, I had a different sermon ready, but I felt I wanted to preach that sermon. So I get to, I preach there each month on A, B, C, A, B, A, B and C yard there. So I get to C yard, and I'm preaching that message. 
I see several guys weeping and crying. I didn't know what was going on. Found out that that week before I was there, one of the men there in the church had passed away. And that sermon was a great comfort to them. I, it's just seeing God work in that way. When you don't know what you're saying, that it's somebody needs to hear that, that's such a blessing to me. So um, that was helpful. Then another guy in a yard, I, when I preached that same sermon, said his mother had just passed away two weeks ago. And it ministered, he was getting ready to give up on the church and leave. And it really ministered to his heart. So the point is, be bold to speak for Christ. Because you don't know when what you're going to say, it may seem unimportant or insignificant to you, but there's somebody out there who probably needs to hear exactly what you have to say. Right? And God's put us there to say those things at just that right moment. It's not for me to decide when to, when to speak for Christ. It's for me to do it. And for him to decide. Because what I have to say may be what they need to hear. And what you have to say may be what they need to hear. So the Lord's been good to us this year. We've seen a lot of men come through our services. And um, I got a friend that's been coming with me on Friday nights and preaching and getting, he was really nervous coming to pray. He doesn't, he's, some guys are, are meant for prison ministry, right? Like for me, it comes natural. I go in there, I'm just like one of the guys. It's just, it's just I, feel, I feel more comfortable in Friday night service at A Yard than I do at my own church on Sunday mornings. I always tell the guys, this is my church, right? I go out there, I feel like a weirdo. And here, I feel comfortable with you. I don't know what it is. But he's not that way. He is very awkward <laughs> and uh, very nervous. But, but in the last year, I've seen the Lord really turn him into a, a bold preacher as well. And I, I think he wants to get his church now involved in doing prison ministry, which is a real blessing to me. But uh, I, don't ask me why I'm at home in the prison. I don't know. I just... Uh, <laughs> I always tell them that's my kind of folk right there. Because they're more alive, right? My, I love my church. You're not recording this, right? I love my church. But my church is dead, man. I try to tell them. When they sing, they come in there saying, in the prison, we're clapping and we're dancing. I don't know. I just, I, I enjoy it. You know, my pastor told me one time, he goes, he goes, Brother Ray, come up and dance or sing like you do in the prison. I said, oh, pastor, you don't want me to sing like you do in the prison. <laughs> I'm going to scare people if I, if, I, if I do that. But I've actually learned to get some rhythm this last year. And, you know, I, I used to clap completely out of sync. And now I've learned, so the Lord's growing. But you know what? Um, the men in there, they have a heart for Jesus, you know. They love the Lord um, because they realize what God has done in their lives. The problem isn't that God has done something greater for them than he has for me, okay. Um, it's not greater, I don't think, for God to forgive a murderer, right, than he is to forgive a liar, right. Now I've done sins worse than lying. I'm not going to confess all my sins to you, but... What I'm saying is we often look at prison ministry like, well, they're much worse than I am. They needed Jesus a lot more than I did. But let me tell you, that's not the case, okay? They don't love God because of how bad they were and now they're, they're forgiven, okay? That's, that's not what it is. Um, I think if we understood what God has done for us, we would act a lot different. The point isn't that God forgave them for what they did. The point is, and this is what I get all the time when I ask for testimonies. This is what I get. It's not just what God did for them, okay. It's what God has made of them. They realize that he's made a new person in here with a heart that no longer desires the things of this world, but desires other things, desires spiritual things. These men, uh, some might have the, the prison redemption, you know, salvation. I'm sure there are some. People, I, it's a lady in my church. It really gets on my nerves. She'll, she'll always say, aren't you worried they're just getting prison salvation? I said, do you know how many people in our church have prison salvation? Right? They love God when the times are hard. They love God for what he does for them. But they're not really dedicated to the Lord. You have that inside or outside the prison. 
okay? But what I see more of inside the prison is people who realize what God has not only done for them, but is doing in their lives. We don't realize that enough on the outside. We don't. We don't, we don't think much about what God is doing in here. Because a lot of times, I think on the outside here, we have this easy salvation that God's not doing anything in here at all. We go to church, we go home. Christ is kind of an addition to our lives, right? He's, a, he's, a, he's, he's one of those things we hang from our, our, our rearview mirror in the car. You know, he's, a, he's an add-on to our lives. But he's not our life. He's not our life. The Bible says when Christ, who is our life, appears, we'll be like him, right? And these men are making Christ the centerpiece of their life. I wish you guys could see it. I wish you guys could hear their testimonies. They're, they're coming to understand, and, and, and it's, you say, well, it's just because they're on the inside. When they get outside, and listen, there's temptations on the inside. There's persecution on the inside. Um, the most vocal group on the inside is the Muslims. And they're very, very, very aggressive. And so are the Native Americans, by the way. The ones who are actively participating in Native American worship. Very aggressive. Um, being, a, being a Christian on, on some of those yards can be a very dangerous task. We had a guy at, at North Current earlier this year uh, who was put in the hospital by uh, another man of another religion for trying to witness to him. Right there in the yard. And, and he got out of the yard, and he still goes to church, and he still witnesses. So what, what I'm saying is don't, don't view Christ as a hobby, okay? These men... Most of them aren't viewing Christ as a hobby. They're viewing Christ, they're seeing Christ uh, as something that not only saved them from sin, but is helping them to become a new person each and every day. Uh, we have one man in Lancaster who is in prison for murdering his wife. And he's been there for, for, for 30-something years. And uh, over the years, um, you know, his wife's sister um, forgave him. I, I use the quotes because you know how people... Everyone says they forgive the killer, but, you know, they probably don't. They're just saying that because it sounds good. So she, she forgave him, and she began to write letters to him. And those letters turned into visits. And those visits, he got saved 17 years ago. Those visits turned into witnessing opportunities. She recently got saved because of the witness he had been in her life. He had killed her sister. But God had changed both of their lives. That's what we're seeing in here. So pray for the men. Pray that they'll continue to grow. Um, they love God. The majority of those who are in the church there love God. And they're getting out and they're serving the Lord on the outside. And that's what we want to see. We want to see men who come out and lead Christian families and get involved in ministry and witness to the lost. And uh, I, when I was preaching at, at uh, the stadium the other day, I had the, the guy Anthony in Richmond. He tried to come preach with me, but he couldn't. He, it was too far for his probation. He couldn't go that far. He wanted to come out and preach about what God had done in his life. So... Ask yourself this, is God doing something in my life every day? Okay, um, I get discouraged. We had, we had a time at church a while back where they asked me what they were thankful for. And everybody was thankful for something God did in their life 20 years ago. Well, he saved me 20 years ago. He got me in church 20 years ago. He got me off drinking 20 years ago. But what's God doing in your life today? And when I asked the guys in prison to give me their, their Thanksgiving testimonies, everything was for what God had done today, what God did yesterday, what God did last week, what God is doing in my family's life right now. Ask yourself, is God doing something in your life right now, or is he not? That's the question to ask. So keep praying for me, for the men.
Um, I think in January in Lancaster, between the three yards, I think there's 21 guys that are being released in January. Pray for those guys. Pray for them. Each one of them, I've been able to speak to them, each one of them already have churches lined up, already have jobs lined up. Pray for them. They'll be faithful throughout, uh, uh, throughout you know, their, their time. They'll, they won't come back again. Um, God's doing amazing things there. He's changing lives. We don't want to see men just make a profession of faith. I rejoice that 13 men made a profession of faith. That's wonderful. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is 13 men who go on to live lives to glorify God, reach others for Christ, and raise godly families. That's my goal. That's what I want. So don't pray for these 21 men who are being released to be released safely. Pray for these 21 men to go out there and join their churches and make an impact in the culture for Christ. That's what we want to do. They, they, they will lead 21 separate families to live godly lives, to be good Christian fathers, to be good Christian husbands. That's what we want. 21 men who leave that place never to return because they're too busy serving God to do the things they did before. That's what we want to have. Amen. So I got uh, about 11 minutes, and I'm going to give you kind of an overview of, of the message I gave to the men for Christmas, um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open just real quickly to Matthew chapter 1. I just want to read one verse and talk to you for a moment on the virgin birth of Jesus. One of the things that uh, I, I see happening um, as I look at Christianity as a whole is there's a lot of people willing to give up the virgin birth. But Christmas is what? It's about the virgin birth. I heard somebody on TV a couple of weeks ago. It was a professor of religion at some university. And they said, is the virgin birth of Jesus, is that a, is that a, what's the term I'm looking for? Is that a, uh, the term I'm looking for, but anyway, is that necessary? And he sat back in his scholarly way and said, well, you know what? That's what we generally believed, how Jesus came into the world. But it's not a necessary component because he could have come into the world any way he wanted to. He could have done anything he wanted to. And so I don't think you have to believe that to be a Christian. I told the men, because like I said, there's a major push in the prisons in, within the Muslim community. There's a big push. And one of their big evangelistic, evangelistic tools is you don't need to believe the Bible because the Bible's wrong on the virgin birth. And the virgin birth is stupid because God wouldn't need to do that. There's no reason for him to have a virgin birth. So the men fight with this on a regular basis. And let me encourage you guys today, don't ever give up the virgin birth of Jesus. Don't compromise on it. Stand on it. Because as I'm going to show you in just a moment, if you give up the virgin birth of Jesus, you give up everything else that comes along with salvation. Okay? Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, very simple verse. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, or in this way, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So we know this uh, is introducing the concept of the virgin birth. If you read Matthew chapter 1, and we don't have time today, I've got about 10 minutes, but if you read Matthew chapter 1, Matthew gives a genealogy of Jesus, does he not? Matthew gives one and Luke gives one. Most scholars believe that Luke is tracing Jesus' lineage through Mary, and Matthew is tracing Jesus' lineage through Joseph. As you read the, 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 the lineage of Jesus in Matthew, you notice a pattern. He begat him, he begat him, he begat him. And that's the normal way of birth, right? We're all adults here, right? That's normal, right? person has a child, and the person has a child, and the person has a child. And then it gets down to Joseph, right, in verse number uh, 16. It says, and Jacob begat Joseph... And then the begats stop. 
the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, or who is called Messiah. So Jacob begat Joseph. Then the begats stop because Joseph doesn't beget Jesus. He's, he's married to Mary, of whom, from Mary, is born Jesus, who is called the Messiah, right? So it all changes. Then he gets down to verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was in this way. What way? A different way, right? He's pointing out it's a different way. He begat him, he begat him, he begat him, he begat him. Normal processes, and then suddenly Jesus is born this way, a completely different way. He doesn't spring from Joseph. He springs from Mary, right? He springs from Mary. You have to forgive me. I'm going to skip most of my notes because I don't have the time to go through them, but I want to highlight a couple of things for you about the virgin birth of Jesus. It's very important. He springs from Mary. The virgin birth of Jesus, let me give you guys just a couple of quick things. It's very important because, number one, the virgin birth of Jesus verifies the word of God. Verifies the word of God, okay? In, in, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah said, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That name means God is with us. So 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah prophesied a virgin would conceive and be with child. Now the Muslim is going to say, ah, it didn't mean a virgin. The word he used in Hebrew isn't the word for virgin. It's the word for young maiden. Okay, I understand that objection. But the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Old Testament, when the Jews translated that, in the Septuagint, they translated it with the Greek word for virgin. So the Greeks of the first century knew what Isaiah was talking about. Okay. They knew what, Jesus, what Isaiah was talking about. The word of God through the prophet. Now, I, Deuteronomy 22:18 says what? Or 18:22 says, if a man speaks in the name of the Lord, and the thing that he says does not come to pass, that man is not speaking. He's not a true prophet. He's not speaking on behalf of the Lord. Now, in this day and age, we have the, we identify prophet the wrong way. See, we 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 say, well, if something they said comes to pass, then they're a true prophet. Well, that's not the test, is it? Right? Because if you say enough things, some things are bound to come to pass. The Bible doesn't say if a man speaks in the name of the Lord and that thing comes to pass, then he's true. It says if he speaks in the name of the Lord and that thing doesn't come to pass, he's not true. So the test of a true prophet is not does what he say comes true, but does anything he say not come true? If Jesus was not virgin born, then what Isaiah said didn't come true. Therefore, Isaiah is a false prophet. And if you throw out the virgin birth of Jesus, you have to remember Isaiah also prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 about the, birth, or the sacrifice of Jesus. He was bruised for our iniquities. Right? He bore our transgressions. He died in our place. If you lose Isaiah 7.14, you lose Isaiah 53. You can't hold on to one and let go of the other one. You know who else prophesied about the uh, virgin birth? God himself. Remember the fall of man in Genesis? Chapter 3, verse 15. You know, he, he put the curse on the, on the woman. He put the curse on the serpent, on the man. What did he say in, in chapter 3? I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Thou shalt bruise his heel, and he'll, he'll bruise thy head. Right? God prophesied that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. We're all adults here. Let me ask you a question. Does a woman have a seed? No. A man has a seed. But yet the seed of the woman, something that comes from the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. What do we see in Matthew? Very important verse. Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, from whom came Jesus, who is called Messiah. The virgin birth. If the virgin birth isn't real, you have to throw out the Old Testament. Isaiah was a false prophet. 
if you throw out the Old Testament, you have to throw out the New Testament because they quoted from the Old Testament, which makes them false prophets. Throw out God himself because God himself said the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. You can't give up the virgin birth and hold on to anything else in the Christian faith. It's so vitally important. Secondly, the virgin birth not only fulfilled the word of God, it brought God into the flesh. Okay? It brought God into the flesh. Uh, uh, John chapter 1 says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, God had to enter the human race to redeem it because he had to die in our place. God cannot die. Therefore, God had to become human to do that. If we give up the virgin birth, we give up substitutionary atonement. Christ didn't die for our sins if he wasn't virgin born. You say, but he could still become a man if he's not virgin born, right? That takes me to my, my next point. In the virgin birth, God created a new Adam. The Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. If Jesus was just born into human form without the virgin birth, that makes him a son of who? Adam, right? Where does the sin curse come to us? Through our father, right? Wherefore, by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. Eve sinned before Adam, but Adam passed death on to the human race. So if Jesus was born with with a physical father, he would inherit from that father the sin of Adam. To be a second Adam, to be the, the right Adam, right? The first Adam was disobedient at a tree. The second Adam was, disobe- was obedient on a tree, right? Adam disobeyed in the garden. Jesus obeyed in the garden, did he not? He's the second Adam. Just, just as Adam represented us before God, the first Adam, in his disobedience, it was passed on to us. So in the same way, the second Adam represents us before God. Just like the first Adam's disobedience was given to us, the second Adam's obedience is given to us. That's how we're saved. If you give up the virgin birth, you give up the second Adam. You give up your representative before God. You give up your salvation being given to you by grace through faith because it's his obedience that gives us our salvation. So we have to hold on to that. And I got, I got two minutes. I'm going to get to this last one real quick. This one blew my mind. This is not original to me. I got this from another pastor who preached on this, and it just blew my mind. So the virgin birth is important because it verifies the word of God is true. You give up the virgin birth, you give up the word of God. You give up the virgin birth, you give up the, that God became a man, which means you give up your substitute who died in your place. If you give up the virgin birth, you give up the second Adam, whose obedience you and I have been given in our salvation. We're accounted righteous before God because Jesus himself is righteous. And then lastly, if you give up the virgin birth, you give up the only person who could ever be the Messiah. And I love giving this to, at the prison for the Muslim men who say the virgin birth was unnecessary. Okay, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 both give us genealogies of Jesus. Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham to David down through David's son, Nathan. Matthew traces the birth of Jesus from Abraham to David through Solomon and down. Now Solomon's line is the royal line, is it not? It was promised that that his seed would sit upon the throne of David forever. In Jeremiah chapter 22... There's a man named Jeconiah. We see him also in Matthew chapter 1. He's in the line of Solomon. But in Jeremiah 22, Jeconiah was cursed. And God said, no one of your seed will ever sit upon the throne of David. So now we have a problem, right? 
If a man comes and says, I'm the Messiah, I'm a son of David, which is a requirement for the Messiah. I'm a son of David through Nathan. You say, that's wonderful. But you're not the royal line. You can't sit on the throne of David. If someone comes to you and says, well, I'm, I'm a son of David through Solomon, that's the royal line. But it's cursed. You have no right to the throne because you're a descendant of Jeconiah. But here comes Jesus, right, born a different way. Physically, he is a son of David through Mary, through Nathan. But he's not born of the line of, 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 of Joseph. He's adopted by Joseph into his family, giving him all rights of inheritance, meaning he now has the right to the throne of Solomon, the throne of David through Solomon, bypassing the curse on Jeconiah because he's not physically a son of Joseph. The virgin birth was absolutely necessary for someone to be the Messiah. Without it, nobody qualifies. And now we can be absolutely confident that Jesus is the Messiah because he is the only one who is uniquely qualified to be so. You give up the virgin birth, you give up the Messiah in general because no one could be the Messiah because of the curse on Jeconiah. Only the virgin birth allows that to happen. Let me close real quick by giving you three quick reasons why I am confident Jesus is the Messiah. Besides what I've given you today. Number one, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prophesied 483 years from the destruction, or from the command to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah, did he not? At the time of Jesus, there was a great messianic expectancy, wasn't there? Everybody's looking for the Messiah. Is this him? Is this him? Surely this is him. Because they knew the timeline had expired for the Messiah to come. Daniel also prophesied that there would be four world kingdoms leading up to the coming of Messiah. Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and Rome. And he says in, in Daniel chapter 7 that in the, in the time of the seventh kingdom, the God of, or the fourth kingdom, the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. Right? Now, I'm not, getting, I'm not, I'm not downplaying future fulfillment of the reign of Christ and all that. What I'm saying is the wording in the Bible is in the time of the fourth kingdom, God would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. If the kingdom of God was not initiated during the time of Rome, it never will be. It had to be set up. Jesus had to come during that time, which happened to coincide with the end of Daniel's timeline, 483 years. Then at the end of the first century, what did God do? He sent the armies of Rome to burn the city, burn the temple, and along with it, all of the birth, birth records. One thing they can't do today is tell you who belongs to what house, who belongs to what tribe. Nobody ever again could trace their lineage back to David. Nobody ever again could trace their lineage to the house of David. Couldn't do it. So at the end of the timeline, during the appointed kingdom that Daniel prophesied, Messiah came, born of a virgin, so he bypasses the curse on Jeconiah, is entitled to the throne of David, dies for our sins, ascends back to heaven, and afterwards, God sends the armies of Rome to destroy all the evidence so no one could ever claim that again. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, nobody ever will be. And the virgin birth is what gives us that confidence. It was absolutely necessary. I went a little bit over, Pastor, and I'm sorry, but let me tell you guys, don't give up the virgin birth. And this season is not about lights and trees and presents. That's all wonderful stuff. But this season is a great big seal of God saying what he has promised is true. What he has sworn to do, he has done. The Savior he promised us, he has given us. That's what, that's what this season is all about. 
that God has kept his promises. And he kept his promises in the virgin birth. He kept them also in the crucifixion, in the resurrection. And he'll keep them also for the rest of our lives. In his return and in his promise to make of us a new people. Amen. That's what Christmas is all about. We should rejoice in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know it was brief. I know I talked fast. But I thank you for these people who just listened so well today. Thank you for this church and this pastor. Thank you so much for this season. I love Christmas. I love it for all the little things, but I love it most of all because you sent us a Savior and we can be absolutely sure that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Thank you so much for what you've done for us, what you're going to do for us again uh, throughout our lives, Lord. Making of us a new people. Bringing us into your family. Calling us by your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.